0: I'm glad you're here today. We're in the middle of this series that Drew and I are preaching. It, it's our orientation, or our membership class starting point. Okay, So if you missed either of the first two weeks, you can catch up online. In fact, they, they've set up just a special spot for these messages on our website that will get you there very easily if you go to TroyCC.org. We think it's important that periodically we loop back and look at just the basics Of our faith, okay, and appreciate uh, the feedback you've given so far in this series. That that many of you uh, think the same thing, and in some ways, some of you maybe are looking at it in ways that you haven't before. Okay, we're asking that as we go along, that you just prayerfully consider: like, would God want you to make this your church family? Either joining or reaffirming your membership decision. A couple reasons for that now. We're going to break this out much more specifically next week but just so you understand some of our thinking one is it's really helpful for us who feel this responsibility to shepherd god's people to know who really feels like they're part of our church so that we can shepherd them well okay the flip side of that is we think it's healthy for you to know that there's a group of people like that relationally you can count on and to introduce yourself into the equation so that others can count on you relationally as well. We also think, uh, you know, you'll just know there's some, there'll be some ways that you can serve as a member in leadership and in teaching that just wouldn't be available otherwise. And so, again, we'll talk more about some of those things next week more in depth. Today, I we'll want to share something that I don't believe we've ever really looked at as a church here at Troy Christian Church. We're going to trace... Um, our heritage as a church and try to understand from AD 30 when the church began to today how did how did we get to this place how did we become this group of people um, so that we understand our culture a little bit better we understand our mission a little bit better especially if you didn't come from a Christian church. And and many of our people that are part of this church came from Methodist churches or Presbyterian churches, maybe Lutheran churches or Catholic church or some different background. And even if you grew up in the Christian church, my guess is you may not even understand the history that I'm going to give that would be helpful for you. I think you should know what you're getting into, Right? as a church. And and so we're going to kind of try to go back in a short amount of time and just cover a mere, you know, 2,000 plus years in uh, the history of the church. So you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, either in your Bible or your Bible app. If you want to grab that Bible in the chair in front of you, it's page 972. And I want to take you through some periods in the history of the church that are marked by certain people or certain events in the hopes that when we're through, that you'll understand the background of where you came from, as well as our background. I want you to get a, an appreciation and an understanding of the capital C church. Like the church that Jesus died for and that he prayed for, God's church throughout time and history. As well as us as a local church that are part of that. So in Matthew chapter 16, begin with me in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, we often refer to that as the good confession, the, the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied there in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Now, that's the nickname that Jesus gave to Simon, and it means rock. The Greek word is Petros, He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, Okay, the word rock is the Greek word petra, similar, but the word petra there means a a big or a giant boulder. On this rock, we take it to mean that Jesus is talking about the statement that Peter just made, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this rock, then, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it takes us to our our first uh, major section in the history of church. We'll call it the Church Established. Okay, We're in AD 30. And Peter is about to open the doors to the kingdom of heaven when he preaches the first gospel sermon. We have it recorded for us in the book of Acts chapter 2. You might remember that in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus ascended, he told his disciples, he said, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples with power. And we read that they're able to speak in foreign languages, to speak in tongues that they had never studied. And they go out into the temple courts where literally hundreds of thousands of Jews had come from all over the world on this day of Pentecost, Pentecost to celebrate this festival. And the disciples preached the gospel literally just a few days after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Now Peter is their leader. The outline of his sermon is in Acts chapter 2. And to all these Jews that he'd come, as well as all the Jews that were had been around for these events of recent, he preaches this message that says, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now that meant a whole lot more to them than it might mean to you. For hundreds of years, they have been waiting for this promised one, this chosen one, this Messiah. And Peter says, he came and you crucified. And yet he rose from the dead. And so he is alive. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that their hearts were pierced. And they said to Peter and the disciples, what do we need to do to make this right to be saved? And Peter answers in Acts chapter 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 people were baptized. Now, that would, be a, that would be a large church today, right? And it was, except for the beauty of it all was they came from all these corners of the world. And they went back to all these corners of the world with the message about Jesus. And that's part of how the gospel spread. The church is born. And the kingdom of heaven, all of a sudden, is open to all men. It had been open before, but never like this. And for the next few hundred years, the church grew, even though it was under severe persecution by the Roman government. Now, depending on the emperor, there might have been different levels of persecution. But never during that time was the church in favor, in the favor of the Roman government. And then one dramatic moment in history. Like in a, in a turn of events that I'm going to share with you, Christianity went from being a persecuted religion to being a powerful religion. And history changed on a dime. The second section of our church history is not just the church established, but the church empowered. Okay, Now in 30... 313 A.D., so we're you know, a little under 300 years from the birth of the church. The Roman Empire is under civil war. And Constantine is leading the revolt. Eventually he will win this battle and become Emperor Constantine. But in the meantime, before that happens, the night before this important battle called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine saw a vision. And in this vision in the sky he saw the sun and he saw a cross. Now he knew a little bit about the Christian God. okay? But the Romans liked to have a lot of gods. And Christianity said, no, there is only one God. Well, the Romans thought that was intolerant and bigoted. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Like the world that we live in today? Well, Constantine had this vision where he saw the signs, and then he heard the voice of God say, in this sign, conquer. And so Constantine took that vision to mean that God had called him to go out and to conquer in the name of the Christian God. And so he began putting the symbol on his labrum, on the military standards, on the shields. It was the sign of the key row. It's a Christian symbol And it's the first two letters of the name of Christ in Greek. So that X in the middle, okay, that would be the equivalent to our C. And then what looks like a P is actually an R. But those are the first two letters in Greek of the name of Jesus. And that became the symbol, his symbol. And Constantine became the emperor of Rome. And he was just sure that the Christian God was the source of his power. And he began demanding that all of his subjects become Christians. Now historians are going to debate whether Constantine was actually a Christian or not. Um, Certainly his actions were not very Christian. Some would say that toward the end of his life, he actually gave his life to Jesus. For our history here, I think the critical point is that Constantine became the ruler and he conquered in the name of Christ and ultimately made Christianity the state religion. So the church went from being a persecuted church to being the state religion, this dramatic shift. For 300 years, if you were a member of this group, you were persecuted by the government. Now all of a sudden, if you didn't become part of this church, you became an outcast, basically overnight. So we watched as the number of Christians skyrocketed, but the level of Christian holiness plummeted. It was easy to share and spread the gospel message because there was no persecution, but the reasons that people began to embrace Jesus became numerous and lost in the middle of that was Peter's message about repentance and forgiveness of sins. To, one went to church because they had to, right? It was expected. And it leads us to this next era, number three, where we find the church corrupted. Corrupted. Within the next few years, the new followers of Jesus, many in name only, there came a lot of power to the church. And with that power came a lot of politics and a lot of corruption. Back in the beginning of the church, like in A.D. 30, like each town, each community had their own church led by a group of local leaders. The Bible calls these men elders or bishops or overseers or shepherds or pastors. Those names are used interchangeably in the New Testament. But as the church grew and new ones started, they tried to figure out how do we get our arms around this thing called the church and so key elders were begin to oversee multiple congregations in an area, and you can see how the hierarchy began. Now by the time of Constantine, um, the church had developed, based on his pronouncements, in what was call, into what was called the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Roman, for obvious reasons, it was the state church of Rome. Catholic simply means universal. So there was just one universal church. And at that time, these regional leaders, elders, or bishops uh, began to have some power and authority. And you might imagine who had the most authority, right? The Bishop of Rome. Like that was, that was the center of everything, center of the church, center of the government, all of those type things. And so he began to be called the bishop among bishops. Okay? And then in 476 AD, an important event happened like the Roman Empire, fell. And there was chaos because of it. The um, strange time in history, right? Not really, really any political structure. You had the lords and the serfs. You had all these little cities of kingdoms and mini kingdoms and that type of thing. And oftentimes the church was really the only strong political entity in town. And so the bishops began to be powerful Men. It was about this time when the Bishop of Rome first began to call himself Pope or Father. The word literally means Papa. Okay? Took the title the head of the church because everyone was looking to him for authority and for leadership. And in 590 AD, Gregory I became the first Pope to actually use the title Pope to refer exclusively to himself. So it's just interesting to note that in like this absence of this strong centralized government that the Bishop of Rome or the Pope was the most powerful political person now in the Western world. Well fast forward to 800 A.D. Um, The Muslims had begun to uh, encroach on the West. Islam at that point was about 200 years old. And there was no real strong government or force in the West. And so there was this fear of the Muslims and of them taking over because when they entered a city or a community or an area, they basically gave the people two choices. Either become a Muslim or die. So there was fear and no government in the West. So enter Pope Leo III. He was the leader of the church. Okay? Really the only real leader at the time Besides him was this emerging Frenchman named Charlemagne of the Franks. And so there began to be this thought. Like if you could join the growing kingdom of France with the declining area of Rome, then you might have enough power to ward off the Muslims. So this dramatic moment happens on Christmas Day in 800 AD. Charlemagne and a whole contingent processional of his people come to worship at Rome. And with a lot of fanfare, Pope Leo crowns Charlemagne, king and emperor of Rome. Roman France begin this new union, and we have what is known as the Holy Roman Empire. Okay? You can imagine the power of the church. Like the pope is now the one determining who's going to be the king. Well, truth is it just it created a lot of corruption in the church, Right? Sometimes it's referred to as the dark ages because it was a spiritually dark time for a couple of reasons. First, there was just this political vacuum that created this power need. And the church filled that need. But that power drew a lot of evil people into leadership in the church. And if you've read about the dark ages, you know there are a lot of evil things done in the name of Christ, in the name of the church during that time. The other reason it was so dark was because there was biblical illiteracy. Illiteracy just meaning a person is not able to read which was challenging enough in the culture there was a lot of illiteracy but the there was no printing presses. The only Bibles that were created had to be hand copied. In fact they were so rare that oftentimes they were chained to the church so no one would steal them. And they were translated into written in Latin which no one could read anyway. And so basically you have this whole group of people called the church that are relying on the priests to tell them exactly what they were supposed to do. And oftentimes what they were told to do was very far from what the scriptures told them to do. And so for 700 years, it was a dark time. But around 1500 AD, there were two things that happened to set the stage for the church to be reformed. That's our fourth stage. Okay, one thing that happened was the invention of the printing press. Okay, so now people began to read the Bible in their own language. They began to understand it. They began to see that what it said was a lot different than what the priests were telling them. And they realized uh, certainly some things going on in the church were not in line with, with what was said in the Bible. And there were challenges with that. It was obvious the church needed to be reformed. But the big issue that happened around that time, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you would, was this abuse of what they call the doctrine of indulgences. Okay? Now based on this teaching, you could basically do whatever you want. You could indulge yourself. That's where the word comes from. And then go to a priest and he would say that for a certain fee, a certain amount of money, your sins could be absolved. So in other words, the message was you can do pretty much anything you want and then you can just pay your way out of hell. okay? Or your family's way, for those who've gone on before. Now you can imagine the financial gain that was for the church. But you can also imagine what that did to the love of holiness and spiritual maturity and the way that, that God's people represented him to a lost world. Morality in the church hit an all-time low on several fronts, and people began to demand reform. Something had to change. And on the scene appears probably the most, no doubt the most famous reformer of all of them, this young Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. Now, not Martin Luther King, and not Martin Luther King Jr. We're still on the other side of the pond. Okay, Martin Luther, this Catholic priest, like he began to read the book of Romans. And he became more convinced that we are justified by faith and not by works. Remember last week when we studied Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he read through the book of Romans and he was under conviction. He began to understand clearly, the message of sin and salvation. And he realized that years of church tradition and power had corrupted the church to the point that people didn't understand even the basics of salvation anymore. And so Luther writes a paper. It's referred to as the 95 Theses, which just means 95 reasons why the church needed reformed. And he took it and he nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, the church door was kind of like the town bulletin board, okay? So think about when that gets nailed on the door, that becomes like the leading story on the 6 o'clock news, okay? Or, or the front page of the paper. Remember those things, papers? Okay, yeah. Or for others of you, like it went viral on Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> however, however it works for you, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> now, Martin Luther... I mean, his heart was that this would start a reform in the church. But the people in power were having nothing of it. They were threatened. They asked him to recant his 95 theses, and he wouldn't because he believed they were based on the Bible, and so he, began, he became excommunicated. Okay? Now, it, it forced Luther to realize, like the Church of Jesus is not a name on a sign. It's not a designation by a government. So Luther started his own church, the Lutherans. And with a hundred, within a, the next hundred years, a lot of reformers, driven by their knowledge of the Bible, had also become either disenchanted with the church and been kicked out of it or certainly began to, or, or just began to leave on their own because of what they read in the Bible. And this era was called the Protestant Reformation. Protestant, meaning protest. Reformation, meaning reform. So other groups formed out of this period, including the Presbyterians, uh, the Methodists. The roots of the Baptist church came from this era. The Episcopal church came from this era. The good thing about this era was people finally cared again about the truth that was found in the scriptures. The bad thing is that the church is now divided nobody really knew what to believe everyone was left in some ways to their own opinion i mean during this era every church seemed to be its own church and every time there seemed to be a disagreement there was another split there was a man in scotland by the name of thomas campbell okay he was a preacher in the presbyterian church in scotland but not just the presbyterian church like there were three qualifiers after his name to tell you what kind of Presbyterian his was, <laughs> which means there'd been three splits that happened in all of that, and it burdened him, okay? And, and so um, he began to think that this wasn't particularly honoring to God, nor reflective of this church in A.D. 30, right? Well, he got sick, and his doctor told me be better for him if he came to America, So he moved to America, and what he found on the frontier of America was that there weren't many Presbyterians with the same three qualifiers after their name, so who could he fellowship with? Until he realized, you know, there are a lot of people here that just love Jesus, and a lot of people here that are content to just be Christians. And they had this vision of worshiping together without it being based on the name of your church. Or who you lined up with theologically, but the fact that you just lined up with Jesus. And so they, they coined a phrase that was revolutionary at the time, we still use it today, that said we are not the only Christians. Now that seems pretty basic to us, but that was groundbreaking at the time, because at the time, you weren't a Christian unless you were a Presbyterian with three qualifiers. <laughs> because you had to agree with me. And if you didn't agree with me, we simply didn't fellowship. We simply didn't have relationship with each other. Now, by the way, it's estimated that there are 33,000 different kind of churches today in the United States. Read Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 about his followers being one and try to make sense of 33,000 different kinds of churches. Now, unbeknownst to Thomas Campbell, his son Alexander, who was also a Presbyterian preacher in Scotland, was having some of the same thoughts. And he came to America, and Thomas, a little bit gun-shy of telling his son, you know, basically that I've, I've left the church, not the church, but the Presbyterian with three qualifiers church, how happy he was to realize that his son was, was feeling the same way. And so Thomas and Alexander reunited as father and son, began to work for and pray for a new era in the history of the church. And we would call this number five, the church restored. The church restored. There was a man by the name of Barton W. Stone. Okay? He was a great preacher in this era, late 1700s, early 1800s referred to in our nation as the Second Great Awakening. And he participated in these frontier revivals, you know, uh, Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And maybe the most famous or notable one was the Cane Ridge Revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. The year was 1801. Okay? Now, that revival has been said to have civilized Kentucky. Okay? You might debate whether that's true or not. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> but they do say that that was a hinge point in Kentucky's history, right? They say that um, Kentucky, by reputation, at that point, was filled with just people that broke the law in the east and ran away. <laughs> you know, Daniel Boone in the frontiers. When they say that, like one out of every ten Kentuckians were at that particular revival at one point or another. But what you found was there was these preachers from different churches and different denominations, standing side by side in these revivals and just preaching Jesus. And people would respond not by joining a church. They would respond by giving their lives to Jesus. And Barton W. Stone had this vision of that being the norm. No denominations, no titles, just Christians. Well, eventually Stone met up with Thomas and Alexander Campbell and they began this movement that's referred to sometimes as the Stone-Campbell movement or the Restoration movement. This simple effort to convince Christians to get back to the Bible and drop the denominational ties and become Christians only. So Troy Christian Church and a lot of churches that have the name Christian Church or Church of Christ have their roots in this movement to restore the church. Not to reform the church, but to actually go back to A.D. 30. And let's look at what they did in the early church, and let's restore the church back to that time. So from this movement, there are some sayings that we still live by today. They're not, they're, these aren't Scripture, right? They're just ways to categorize or to capture some of the heart of Scripture. For example, one was where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent. So if the Bible says it's important, then we should agree on that. But if it doesn't, why would we create all of these different delineations that just divide us from other Christians? In matters of doctrine, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty or freedom. And in all things, charity or love. Again, if the Bible says this is where we all need to be, we gather there where there are different opinions. We say, you know, you're free to think one thing and you're free to think another as long as we all think the same about Jesus and his death on the cross and salvation through him alone. And then the last one was an expanded. So we're not, we're not the only Christians, but we want to just be Christians only. Let's just be known as followers of Jesus. So that was the restoration movement. His goal, again, not just to reform the Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church or any other church, but to restore it. back to the time of the book of Acts. So we started as a church, as the Troy Church of Christ, 68 years ago. We've had three different buildings. We believe God's plan is that we'll have another location one of these days. We've gone through a name change to the Troy Christian Church. We've had hundreds of members, 12 different lead ministers, a lot of different staff members. But as a church... Like we're committed to those principles of the restoration movement which allow us to celebrate, celebrate any church that is preaching and teaching the Bible and leading people to Jesus. Now I will tell you it's not been a perfect movement. (laughs) And I'll tell you it's had some of its own issues. I'll tell you that's what we want to do here. That's what our goal is, to celebrate churches in our community that are leading people To Jesus and teaching the Bible it's a great movement and it's a rich history like it's hard to watch the cultural trends of our nation and our world that continue to move further and further away from God and yet it's exciting to see that many churches in America and around the world are capturing those same basic ideas that it's not about the name on the church it's about the name of the one who died for the church, Jesus Himself, and believe that the Bible is the Word of God. So we've come to call this modern day movement um, of back to the Bible churches who lift up the name of Jesus, uh, it's gained the name of evangelical Christianity. Okay? Evangelical from its root meaning evangelism. Christianity that has taken on the passion and the purpose of that first church to evangelize a lost world and introduce them to Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's why we exist as a church, to lift up the name of Jesus so that all people might be drawn to him. Now, I don't know when in our future that we'll ever give a church history lesson again on a Sunday morning. But I think it's helpful to understand where we come from. And it's helpful to see where the church has detoured from God's plan. And it's important to remember that it's not our church, it's His church. And He continues to offer redemption to His people, and for His kingdom, and for His church, and offer us in this day, at this moment, an opportunity To be the church that he's called us to be. A church that is built on the foundation of the scriptures. Whose sole purpose is introduce people to Jesus and make more disciples. And we'll talk about that in the times to come. Now, it is possible that a person could spend their whole life in the church. And never really meet Jesus. So if you find yourself today for whatever reason um, reminded that maybe you found yourself off course or never really met the one who's at the center of it all, Jesus himself. okay And you want to know about him. We're going to sing and I would invite you to just come to the back and talk with us. You notice these last two weeks we have put communion at the end. Okay. Last week that made a whole lot of sense when we talked about the cross. right? This week we think it is making a lot of sense as well when we think about what is the purpose of the church. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his death on the cross. It's all about introducing people to the one that can not just change their life, but change their forever. Okay? Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for your son Jesus. And we know that we gather in his name today for his glory, for his purposes, that we might be um, the people called out holy, not only in our actions, but in our purpose, that we might be your people, that we might be your church, Lord, it is all because of Jesus, and we thank you for him, it's for him that we worship you and give you praise, and it's in his name that we